Let's pray. Our Father, we believe that it is by your word, applied, empowered by your spirit, that you do your work in us. And so, Father, we pray that you would work in us now by your word and spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Galatians chapter 2. I have back problems. You might say, John, you're too young to have back problems. But I'd also say that I'm too young to have this much gray in my beard. And yet here we are. My back problems aren't serious. It's just a tendency for it to go out of alignment. Uh, Started shortly after I graduated from college and has in different seasons been better or worse. Uh, There wasn't anything particularly traumatic that started it. Um, As far as I can recall, I I can't say that I have a bad back because I went bungee jumping or cliff diving or or something like that. That would be a much better story. Uh, My story is I just got out of bed one morning and it hurt. (laughs) So you can relate to me. What I've learned over the, the years is that when my back is out of alignment, it doesn't only hurt my back. It affects everything that's attached to it, which makes sense because your backbone is a sort of load-bearing part of your body. It holds it up. It gives it structure. And it's also the pipeline for your nervous system, right? So you put your back out of alignment, you both throw off your body's skeletal framework, everything kind of goes out of order, and you quite literally aggravate your nerves, So while others might wince at the thought, I quite enjoy going to the chiropractor. I like getting cracked back into alignment. The problem is that my back doesn't just automatically stay aligned afterwards. You're like, yes, that's that's how they get you. It doesn't just stay aligned afterwards. It can be easily knocked back out, partly by external factors, right, like carrying heavy moving boxes, not that I have any recent experience with this, or less obvious external factors like the way I sit. can also be put back out of line because of internal factors. My, my muscle memory actually conspires against me and pulls my vertebrae back out of alignment, kind of settles back into its normal misalignment. It needs to be trained on what is actually right and aligned the way it's supposed to be. So I'm, I'm constantly in need of getting my back put back in line. Now, why am I telling you this? Well, I think it's an illustration of the way that the gospel functions in the Christian life. The gospel is the spine, the backbone of the Christian life. When everything is aligned with it properly, the body is healthy. But as soon as it goes out of alignment, it causes problems everywhere. And that's just what we see here in Galatians chapter 2. Paul, you'll remember, is writing to the churches in Galatia and to warn them about teachers who've, who've come to them and were both disparaging Paul's ministry and were preaching a false gospel. 
And up to this point in the book, Paul has only hinted at what this false gospel actually is. What exactly are these false teachers preaching? He's hinted at it, but he hasn't come right out and said it yet. He's made it clear that his opponents are teaching something contrary to the truth of the gospel. But first he had to reestablish the Galatians' confidence in him as a trustworthy messenger before he could address what this false gospel actually was. So we've seen him do that in the past few passages. And now having done that, Paul begins to transition uh, from discussing his biography and why he could be a trustworthy messenger for the Galatians. Now he's going to move to talk about his, his theology. He's going to move to defend his preaching of the gospel. So here in Galatians 2, actually Galatians 2, 11 to 21, is this transitional passage in the book. Paul wraps up discussing his personal experience and sets the stage for how he's going to defend the truth of the gospel moving forward in the book. And this transitional passage takes the form of one more story from Paul's experience. He recounts a, a tense a confrontation that he had with the apostle Peter. This confrontation ultimately is over the same issues that were plaguing the churches in Galatia. And the way that Paul responded to Peter in this incident serves as a sort of gateway into Paul highlighting this core issue that's at stake as he begins to defend the gospel. So this week we're going to look at verses 11 to 16. We're going to focus on this confrontation between Paul and Peter. And then next week we'll look at verses 15 to 21, which is really the theological center of the book. We'll examine Paul's explanation of the truth of the gospel that he was so zealously defending. So note that we're going to look at verses 15 and 16 both this week and Next week, it's sort of a a hinge on which Paul's argument turns, so we'll look at it uh, in both weeks. But this morning, we're thinking about verses 11 to 16. As we do that, we'll look first at Peter's hypocrisy, and then second at Paul's response. Peter's hypocrisy and Paul's response. So first then, Peter's hypocrisy. Look with me at verse 11. When Kephas, remember that's the Aramaic name for Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. In Greek, verse 11 actually begins with the word but, which you may see if you have a a different translation. But when Kephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. So Paul's not just moving on to another of his personal experiences, he is drawing a direct contrast to what he's just talked about in Galatians 2, 1 to 10. Right? In, in that passage, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, Paul recalled the great unity that he actually had with the other apostles on the truth of the gospel. But now in verse 11, he's openly opposing Peter. It's, it's quite an about face. Most likely, the incident happened after Paul and Barnabas had returned from their first missionary journey in Acts 13 and 14, during which they had planted the Galatian churches. They came back to Antioch, and and after they returned, we read in Acts 15.1 that certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. 
And so this may well have precipitated the, the conflict that Paul is describing here between Peter and himself. Right? Well, why did Paul oppose Peter here? I mean, we just read that they agreed on the truth of the gospel. Well, this wasn't the result of some kind of apostolic rivalry. Right? Paul's not defending his turf. He's not trying to score cheap points. He's not trying to tear Peter down before others so that he can exalt his own authority and build his brand. Paul did this out of concern both for Peter and for the whole church. He says that he opposed Peter because Peter stood condemned. Strong language, but Paul doesn't mean here that Peter was under the condemnation of God for his sin. There's actually a a different Greek word for that than the one that uh, Paul uses here. Paul is saying that the idea of Peter standing condemned, it's, it's not so much one of condemnation before God as much as it is one of being rightly blamed for his actions. So you might just as well say that Paul opposed Peter because he was clearly in the wrong or because he was at fault. That's the idea. But how was Peter clearly in the wrong? Let's look at verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. Remember, Peter had been the one who first carried the gospel to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. It was through Peter's preaching that the Roman soldier Cornelius and those of his household were converted. It became evident to Peter, that God in the gospel was calling together a a new people, both Jews and Gentiles, through faith in Christ. Salvation through faith in the Messiah came to the Jews first, but not to the Jews only. So Peter returned to Jerusalem, reported this incredible development to the church there, but it it wasn't unopposed. When you go back and you read Acts 11, you find that he was criticized by the circumcision group, these ultra-conservative Jewish Christians, because they said to Peter, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them, which of course was forbidden by the Jews. But then Peter recounted how God himself had shown him that the Gentiles were to be fellow sharers in eternal life through faith in Christ, equally forgiven, equal members of God's people. So they were not to be considered unclean. He knew better than anyone that God accepted the Gentiles into his people through faith in Christ as Gentiles, not as converts to Judaism. So later when Peter came to visit the church in Antioch, it's not surprising that he would freely fellowship and eat with the Gentiles. That was the logical outworking, the logical implication of the gospel that he understood. What was surprising was what happened next, continuing in verse 12. But when they, that is these certain men from the Apostle James who who came to Antioch, we actually read later in the book of Acts that they had come to Antioch and were teaching these things without the authorization of the church in Jerusalem. So they came from James, or at least they claimed to come from James. When they arrived... Peter began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. 
It's the same group that is described in Acts 15.1. Those came to Judea, from Judea, told the believers at Antioch that unless you become obedient to the law of Moses, you couldn't be saved through Christ. You needed Christ plus obedience to the law of Moses. And so when they arrived in Antioch, Peter began to act differently. He drew back. He separated himself from the Gentiles, although he clearly knew that there was nothing wrong with what he was doing. But he altered his behavior because he feared this group. And it didn't only have an effect on Peter's actions. Look at verse 13. Peter did this, and the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. So that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So Peter's actions lead the other Jews to change their own behavior as well. And it was so bad that even Barnabas, Paul's closest co-worker in preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, was swept up in it. Why was Paul so upset about, why, about who Peter was sitting with at the church potluck? What would lead him to rebuke a fellow apostle before the whole church? Peter's refusal to continue an unhindered fellowship with the Gentile Christians implicitly communicated that the Gentiles were not to be considered fully reconciled to God, not fully forgiven of sin, not full members of God's people, not people that he could fellowship with. They were still, in some sense, outsiders. Unless, of course, they would become Jewish. By his actions, Peter was effectively compelling the Gentile Christians to live like Jews in order to be saved. So Paul openly, publicly corrected Peter, and he did so, verse 14, because he, he saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. They're not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. This is not ultimately about cafeteria politics. Paul's not rebuking Peter because he was just being mean and unloving to the Gentiles. Not just because he was doing something contrary to the commands of Christ. Paul rebuked Peter because what he was doing reflected on the very heart of the gospel itself. Now, it wasn't that Peter's theology had changed. It wasn't that he had begun to believe or preach a false gospel like the false teachers were doing. Peter's problem wasn't heresy. It was hypocrisy. Behavior that contradicts what you claim to believe. In this moment, there's a, a fundamental disconnect between Peter's convictions and his conduct. This is what Paul Tripp calls the difference between your functional theology and your formal theology. Right? He knew that the Gentiles didn't have to become Jews in order to be saved. He knew that he himself, as an ethnic Jew, was no longer bound to the law of Moses. He'd been set free through Christ, and so he knew that he was free to live in fellowship with the Gentiles, free to not follow the stipulations of the Jewish law. He was free, in effect, to live like a Gentile among the Gentiles. 
And apparently he did so. So when these nitpicking legalists arrive and Paul, out of fear, withdraws and refuses fellowship, unless the Gentiles would begin to live like Jews, it's the very height of hypocrisy. This hypocrisy is not only causing Peter to sin, it's not only leading those around Peter to sin, it's also threatening to to rend the body of Christ in two. It threatened to completely counteract not only Paul's preaching, that the Gentiles were just as much a part of God's people as, as the Jews were through faith in Christ. It also was threatening effectively to reverse God's purpose in Christ, which Paul says in Ephesians 2 was to create one new humanity out of the two, making peace, reconciling in one body Jews and Gentiles to God, not through the law, but through the cross. So this is far more than a question about table manners and neighbor love. It's a question about the very heart and purpose of God in the gospel. And so Peter may have preached a true gospel with his words, but in this case he was living as if the gospel taught something entirely different. His conduct was not in line with the truth of the gospel. That's one of the key points we take away from this passage this morning. For Christians, our sin is often a matter of our thoughts, our attitudes, and our actions being out of line with the truth of the gospel. While it ought not to be true, there's often an inconsistency between our convictions and our conduct, our beliefs and our behavior, our profession and our practice. Like I mentioned a few moments ago, what Paul Tripp calls a difference between our formal theology and our functional theology. Our formal theology is what we cognitively affirm to be true. But our functional theology is what we show ourselves to actually believe through our actions. It's sort of like when you say that if you want to know what your priorities really are, you should look at your bank statement, right? There's what we say our priorities are in life, and maybe what we truly know they ought to be and truly want them to be, and then there's how we actually steward and spend our resources. And when push comes to shove, what we choose to spend our money on often reveals what we really prioritize. And it's the same with our theology. There's what we say we believe and know to be true on the basis of the Word of God, And then there's how we actually live our lives, which may be quite inconsistent with what we say we believe. We say we believe that God will provide for all of our needs, what the Bible teaches, and then we spend quite a bit of time trying to get everything we need for ourselves just in case God doesn't actually come through. You see the inconsistency? And like a bad back, the more out of alignment we are with the gospel, the the longer we stay that way, the more problems it causes for the whole body. And this was the case with Peter in Antioch. And his hypocrisy prompted a stinging response from Paul. So how did Paul respond? What did he say to correct Peter? What would you have said? If you were in Peter's shoes, 
or Paul's shoes, rather. And this is instructive for us because Paul did not say, now listen, Peter, you need to stop being so mean and judgmental, and you really just need to be nice to the Gentiles. I don't care if you don't want to do it, just do it. That's what I sound like when I talk to my kids. Maybe not the best form of, of encouragement. He didn't say, remember, Peter, Jesus said we have to love our neighbors and even love our enemies. So you should start doing that. And that's true, but that's not what Paul says. What does he say? Verse 14, says, You are a Jew, yet, yet you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? First he calls out Peter's hypocrisy. And then Paul lays down, not the law, but the gospel. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. I love this. Paul corrects Peter's conduct not by reminding him of the requirements of the law, love your neighbor, but by reminding him of the truth of the gospel. For the first time in Galatians, Paul clearly explains what this gospel truth is that's most especially at stake in Galatia, both in his confrontation with Peter and with the Galatian churches, and that is justification by faith alone. We're going to spend quite a bit more time on on this in the next few weeks. But for now, remember this. The Bible teaches that the way that people are justified, that means having a right relationship with, having a a right status, a right standing before God, forgiven, declared righteous, the way that people are justified is only through trusting in Jesus Christ and not by anything we do to earn it. People can have a right relationship with God only through faith in Christ and not by our works. And friends, if you're not sure where you stand with God as you, as you listen this morning, you need to hear this, that the only way you can be right with God is through trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. So transfer your trust, your allegiance away from yourself, away from your works, away from your family, your ethnicity, your culture, anything else that you place your trust in for God's acceptance and place it wholly in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. Now, if justification by faith alone is true, then one of the implications is that all of those who trust in Christ and thus are right with God are on level ground. There's no hierarchy. There's no distinction based on social class or ethnic background or education level. In the church, there are only those who are in Christ. No one earned their way in. No one deserves forgiveness. No one is owed eternal life. 
everyone who is justified is justified entirely by the free grace of God, entirely through faith in Christ. Everyone who enters, enters the same way, by grace through faith in Christ alone. Everybody stays in the same way, by grace through faith in Christ alone. Everyone will finish the same way, by grace through faith in Christ alone. That means that, as Paul says so often in his letters, when it comes to our status before God, there is no distinction. There are only those who are in Christ and justified or those who are not in Christ and are under condemnation. And so if justification is by faith in Christ alone and not by following the law, then Peter has absolutely no grounds for not eating with the Gentiles. In fact, for him to do so was to say by his conduct that justification is not by faith alone. And that means Paul's correction of Peter needed to go deeper than just saying, you're not loving the Gentile Christians. He had to show Peter how his conduct was fundamentally out of line with the gospel. That's the flip side of the point I made a few moments ago. If for the Christian our sin is often a matter of our thoughts and our attitudes and our actions being out of line with the truth of the gospel, then our growth in holiness, our sanctification, our living the Christian life is often a matter of bringing our thoughts and attitudes and actions back into line with the truth of the gospel. This is, this is basic to the Christian life, and it's what so much of Galatians is about holding fast to the true gospel and increasingly living in line with it by the power of the Holy Spirit. So our spiritual growth does not come primarily through our own efforts, our self-discipline, our trying harder to be better. It comes first and foremost as the Spirit empowers us to bring everything in our lives into line with the gracious truth of the gospel. John Owen, the great Puritan theologian, put it this way. Holiness is nothing but the implanting, writing, and realizing of the gospel in our souls. Holiness is nothing but the implanting, writing, and realizing of the gospel in our souls. The reason that might sound strange to us is because left to ourselves, we are so naturally prone to legalism. The notions of merit-based earnings and rule-following. It's not without reason that the frequent question asked of both Jesus and the apostles is, what must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must we do to work the works God requires? What must I do to be saved? We think this way about ourselves and we think this way about others. What must I do? But when Peter needs to be corrected, Paul doesn't just tell him what he needs to do. He doesn't say that he needs to stop being a hypocrite and just go back to eating with the Gentiles. In fact, we actually don't have any record that Paul said anything to Peter about needing to go back and eat with the Gentiles. He focuses on the gospel, highlighting this central truth of justification by faith alone in a way that is designed to show Peter his hypocrisy and to pull him out of it, with the result that Peter works out the implications that if this is true, 
then I need to go back and fellowship with my Gentile brothers and sisters. We see something similar to this in the passage we read earlier in Titus 3. I wonder if you caught it. Paul says, At one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. He summarizes God's gracious, saving work in the lives of Christians. We're saved, born again, renewed, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, justified by grace, adopted as heirs in the hope of eternal life. To what end? Verse 8, he says, And I want you to stress these things. Why? So that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Titus, Paul says, stress these magnificent, glorious truths of the gospel of grace alone so that God's redeemed people will do good works. But like I said, this is not our natural disposition. Just like the spine is liable to be put out of alignment by external circumstances and internal circumstances, so too our lives are liable to go out of alignment with the gospel, both by what's happening around us and by what is natural within us. In our thoughts, our attitudes, in our actions, we can be pulled out of line with the gospel by the world around us or by our own soul's muscle memory of legalism. And that's what happened to Peter. The, the external circumstance of the arrival of these legalistic teachers triggered Peter's well-worn muscle memory of strict adherence to the Jewish law that we knew better. And he needed Paul's correction to swing him back into line with the truth of the gospel. So here's a question for you to ask yourself. Do you think of the Christian life primarily in terms of a set of rules to be followed, commands to be obeyed, principles to be applied, disciplines to be observed? Or do you think of the Christian life primarily in terms of believing the gospel and working out and working in its implications throughout all of life, like yeast kneaded through dough? Do you know the gospel well enough that you can clearly think through its implications for various areas of your life? That's part of my calling is to teach in such a way that I both help you to understand the truth of the gospel and to live in line with its implications. And we need to be constantly reminded of this. Because we have such a tendency to functionally forget the gospel and be pulled out of line with it. We need to constantly preach the gospel to ourselves and to one another. The gospel is not just for non-Christians. The gospel is for Christians. This is why Martin Luther said in a way that only Martin Luther could say it. 
that it's necessary that we know the gospel well, teach it to others, and beat it into their heads continually. So you may consider this your weekly gospel beating. Now, it's not that the commands or the instructions of the Bible have no place in the Christian life. They do, but we must be careful that they don't become the foundation. Think about the way that Paul gave instructions to Christians about their conduct in other places. Ephesians 4, there's potential for division and bitterness and anger in churches. Paul calls on Christians to be kind and compassionate to one another and to forgive each other, not just because it's the right thing to do or even because it's what Jesus commanded, but first and foremost because in Christ God forgave you. Shortly afterwards, Ephesians 5, Paul again says, believers should walk in the way of love. They should love one another. Not just because it's what Jesus commanded them to do, that's true, but Paul says here that they are to do so because they are dearly loved children whom Christ loved and gave himself up for. Romans 15, Paul exhorts believers who are fighting about disputable matters of conscience to accept one another, not just because it's what God commanded them to do, but because Christ accepted you. Paul's exhortations to obedience elsewhere are based on and motivated by the truth of the gospel. In these examples, Paul's not just calling us to live a Christian life by applying good biblical principles to our lives, as if the Christian life was mainly about putting the book of Proverbs into practice. Rather, he's he's calling us to consistently apply the truths and implications of the gospel in our lives. The instruction he issues is, is not bare or arbitrary. They're not just random commands that we're supposed to obey, but he calls us to specific practices that are shaped by the gospel. He's consistently calling people to remember the gospel and to live accordingly. And this is not just limited to something that we must do for ourselves personally. We're also to do it corporately. When when Peter was out of step with the gospel, Paul did the work of a good fellow believer by coming alongside him, by lovingly pointing out his sin. I'm sure Peter didn't think it was that loving at the time. But lovingly pointing out his sin, pointing him not to the bitterness of the law, Peter, you're doing wrong, pointing him to the sweetness of the gospel, both to give motivation and to give shape to his renewed obedience. I think that provides a wonderful picture of how we can and should minister to one another in the body of Christ. Now hear me, I'm not saying that you have permission to go around to anybody who's doing something you don't agree with and start rebuking them publicly. I am not saying that. But what I am saying is that as we shepherd and disciple and watch over one another in love, it should be a normal part of our relationships, our conversations, to help one another live in line with the truth of the gospel, to gently point out where we are out of line with the gospel, to lovingly pull one another back into line with the gospel. So is that how you shepherd and disciple and care for others in your community groups? Sunday school classes, your discipling relationships, your friendships? Does the gospel get center stage in how you minister to others? Or is the spotlight on self-discipline, trying harder to be better? So I would rejoice to see our congregation, all of us as individuals and 
in our life together to be increasingly characterized by just such a gospel-centered, gospel-driven, gospel-shaped life and ministry. Because if our sin is a matter of our thoughts and attitudes and actions being out of line with the truth of the gospel, then our growth in holiness is both individually and together as a congregation a matter of bringing our thoughts, attitudes, and actions back into line with the gospel. Now, there's one more thing. You might be thinking, well, John, that really sounds great, but does it really work? And if we only had Galatians, we might not know because Paul doesn't actually tell us what happened with Peter. He tells us he corrects him, and then as soon as Paul is done quoting what he said to Peter, he just moves on. He doesn't say anything about what happened. We don't know how Peter received this or how others received this public correction, but thankfully we don't only have Galatians. So I want to end our time this morning by reading to you the account of what happened after this confrontation between Paul and Peter from Acts 15. After the conflict in Antioch, there's a council that's held in Jerusalem among the leaders of the church to settle this question that was threatening to tear the church apart. Paul and Barnabas, himself now restored, went up as representatives from Antioch. So I read from Acts 15. When they, Paul and Barnabas, came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel, and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, We believe that it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Peter is candidate for comeback apostle of the year. But it's not because he just tried harder to be a nice guy, but because Paul boldly but gently sought to correct him, guiding him to realign his behavior, his practice with the truth that he believed and preached. And the result is that Peter rises at the Jerusalem council and says, the Gentiles are saved in the exact same way as we. Not through the law, but through faith by the grace of our Lord Jesus. He had come back into line with the truth of the gospel. And so friends, let us pray together that the Spirit would help us as we seek to continually be brought back into line with the truth of the gospel and that we might disciple and care for others by helping them to do the same. Let's pray.
Father, we give you thanks that you have saved us according to your mercy and by your grace. And so, Lord, help us. Help us to grow in grace. Help us to to see where we are living out of line with the gospel and be brought back into line with it. Correct us. Send, Send your people to help us to live in accord with your truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?